Hello and welcome back to our very first episode of the Tip of the Iceberg in, gosh, quite a long time. It has been so long. How long has it even been, Brittany? Do you know? It's been like nine months. So we could have had babies. Basically. Or how do you know that this wasn't, this is a new version of the tip of the iceberg that has just grown for nine months and now it is our our newborn tip of the iceberg podcast? I mean, they don't know that. And we could just tell everybody that that's what we've been working on for the last nine months is just this. (laughs) That's actually probably true. That's probably true. It wasn't COVID. It wasn't... Um, working in a domestic violence program through the COVID era, continuing to do so. It was just that we were um, going through this tip of the iceberg pregnancy. <laughs> we were gestating. We were just- <laughs> oh, and now everyone has turned off this podcast. But you know what? It's not super fault because we have gone through a lot of changes with the podcast. The podcast that you have last listened to has transformed and grown into a a new version of the tip of the iceberg. And we are so, so excited about it. Yep. (laughs) So some highlights from our newborn baby podcast here is that we have a new co-host. So you all recognize my voice, I assume from somebody who has been on the podcast for quite a while. And you might recognize Brittany's voice as well as she has been, uh, featured on several podcast episodes, but she is now the co-host of the Tip of the Iceberg podcast, and we welcome her. Happy to be here, <laughs> and for it to be official. <laughs> it is now official, and we're excited for it to be official because Brittany and I have been working on this for the last couple of months to make sure that we are ready to roll with the podcast and making sure that we have the very best stories for you and the very best content because... It's important stuff we're talking about, right? Yep, it sure is. And we try to keep it serious until we don't. That's right. That is right. And before we dive into our really, really good story for today, we do have to mourn the mourn the transition from Farron, right? We, we miss mm-hmm. Farron. Um, but being a director of a domestic violence program, during the COVID-19 pandemic is brutal, one might say. Mm -hmm. And so she lovingly, lovingly delegated and handed the reins to my new favorite co-host, Brittany. Yep. And those are some decent sized shoes to fill. So I will do my my best. (laughs) All right, Brett. So what I've got for us today is I thought we could spend some time in the Thanksgiving spirit, right? We've all been kind of Thanksgiving-y with the holiday last week and uh, with all of the Thanksgiving stuff happening. And so I thought we'd do a a domestic violence Thanksgiving story. How does that sound? Oh, it sounds heartwarming. (laughs) It is. And this is actually a really, really sad story. And it's really, really complicated. It's really... There's a lot of pieces to this, which is why you might hear as I'm going through this story, some pages rustling, because there's a lot of pieces to this story. And I ended up having to just make a complete timeline on a piece of paper so that I can kind of figure out what is happening. Wow. It's like you're a real podcaster. 
Okay, that was hurtful. <laughs> that was hurtful, Brittany. I am a real podcaster. And I have papers, which you will hear. Okay. Okay, I look forward to the rustling of papers. <laughs> Good. So we are going to talk about the story of Raven Gant um, and her experience through domestic violence. But it's also interesting, her story has a lot of connections to maybe some more broad issues that I want to talk about in relationship to domestic violence, because I think we've talked about this quite a bit on the podcast, where you are experiencing domestic violence or sexual assault, but you are also a human being with a human life, and you have so many other factors going on. And so it would be great if you could just put your entire life on pause, and now you're experiencing domestic violence, or now you're experiencing stalking. But unfortunately, that is not the way it goes. And so while you're experiencing stalking or domestic violence, you are also a mom, and you're working full time, and maybe you have a health condition, and maybe, you know, all of these different factors. And I think that comes through very clearly in Raven's story. So there's a lot to talk about here. Okay. Okay. So what I want to say first is that the story of Raven Gant and her domestic violence journey ends in murder. Okay. So I want to give you a heads up Mm -hmm. that this person is no longer alive. She was murdered by her partner and we're going to talk through that. But I know I did one time did a case review where I didn't tell you that she was murdered until the very end. And you were devastated. And I'm sure some of our listeners were as well. So I want to tell people right off the bat that as we're talking about Raven, we have to know that she was a victim of domestic violence that ended up being murdered. I appreciate the heads up. You can prepare. You like kind of yeah. got a plan for that. So what I will say, what I will start out is that Raven's story is complicated because just like many people who experience domestic violence, not all of it is documented. (laughs) A lot of times when we look into these like cold, cold case murder mysteries, there's a really good timeline of how everything played out and what the early signs were and people have really deep dived into what this looks like. But for Raven, it was domestic violence, which happens to so many people. And so not every single thing was documented. So I had to piece together a lot. And I'm hoping that my timeline is accurate, but also realize that this is me piecing together a lot. And so some of these things might not be exactly in the order that they happened, but fingers crossed that they're close enough. Um, So with that in mind, the last thing that the public ever heard from Raven was a Facebook post. And it just says, anyone need a turkey? I have an extra one. That was the last thing that the world heard from Raven. And that's heartbreaking to think about. But especially as I did more research into Raven, that was kind of who she was. Everyone said that she was just the most amazing, amazing person. After reading a little bit about her, I'm not surprised to see this Facebook post even one bit because she is reported as being the kind of person that would, if she had an extra turkey, make sure that somebody else got it so that their Thanksgiving could be good. And I know that's what she was focusing on for this and this Thanksgiving story. So Raven was 27 years old. She's an adorable adorable two-year-old daughter named JJ. So sweet. And she was just like 
from everything I read, a really stand-up, stand-up lady. She was super, super smart. She was the accounts manager at a hotel. So it says the Union Depot Hotel, which is not like, from my understanding, it's not a job that I could do. <laughs> it's not like a front desk hospitality person. It's managing all of the accounts. And I assume mm-hmm. there's numbers and all of that. And I th- Yeah, we work with people, not numbers. Yes, that's right. And so immediately I was like, oh, wow. So she's that kind of smart. She was super super smart and she this is the other thing that I think is so cute that everyone said through line through so many people is that she had an amazing fashion sense she was very frequently the best dressed person in the room which is Mm -hmm. a huge compliment like that is a big deal well now I have to I want to look her up maybe she has some outfits that she does there are some really cute pictures so feel free to look her up as we're talking here. So a couple of quotes from people that knew and loved Raven. Um, A friend said that I would describe Raven as fun, loving, and the life of the room, probably the most fashionable person in every room. Her mom said that she was her backbone and her everything, and that she was an amazing mom who always put JJ first, right? Mm -hmm. So what happened to this amazing person that we're talking about? Let's talk about the domestic violence. So the domestic violence was her boyfriend. Um, Her boyfriend was the person that was doing all the domestic violence. And the boyfriend was JJ's dad. So Raven was mom and and JJ was the child of of her boyfriend and for some reason I'm blanking on his name let me find it and I did just look her up and she does have very good fashion sense she does right yeah and her daughter is adorable yeah yeah so cute okay Watkins Watkins is the boyfriend okay so they had classic classic domestic violence happen um but she did a really good job of keeping that close to the chest a little bit. So what her family said is that they didn't even realize for the longest time that there was anything wrong in the relationship. They didn't always love Watkins, but they didn't realize that anything was super going poorly, right? Until things really, really did. So her brother Ronald said that the first time they realized that something was not right was two years prior to her murder when she came to a family dinner, in his words, bloody and all beat up. And they were like, whoa, something is very, very wrong here, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't know, I, I know I've been in these situations, I don't know if anyone else has, where things feel weird for a while and then something happens and you're like, oh yeah, this is, I can see this happening all the way along. So part of me wonders when she came to this family dinner and Ronald saw signs of like real deal physical abuse, I wonder how much of her family was like, whoa, this makes sense with all of the past that we've seen Mm -hmm. with, with some classic domestic violence stuff. Okay, so her dad decides to go and confront Watkins and say like so wait was it him that walked in bloody or was her it was her oh her yeah 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 so Raven went to a family dinner 
clearly having been physically abused and in Ronald's words, bloody and all beat up. And that's when the family kind of lost it and was like, we're not doing this anymore. This is red. And her dad, Raven's dad was particularly upset. He was really, really upset to the point where he went to confront Watkins and it was a whole thing. And Watkins ended up shooting her dad. Whoa. Yeah. And he was okay. He was all right. They just shot him. Jeez, I read it somewhere, like in in the leg or something like that. But that's a big deal. Can you imagine going and confronting like your sister's partner about something happening in a relationship that you're not okay with? And they just like pull a gun and shoot you, literally? I mean, I feel like that's the next red flag. <laughs> that is so much more than a red flag. That is a code red right yeah. there. Right? And as I read that, I was like, okay, no wonder this escalated. That is very, very serious. We don't see that happen frequently within mm-hmm. domestic violence. Typically what we see, and I don't know, correct me if you have a different experience, but a lot of times what we see is that the abuser saves a lot of the abuse for the person and then puts on a whole show for family, right? Is that what you see too? Yeah, and I also think that a lot of the times, like, the victim survivors are really good at pretending Mm -hmm. as well and covering things up with, like, makeup. And so I, I just don't know how often even family knows enough to confront the perpetrator. I mean, and this is one of the reasons why it's so like why domestic violence house calls can be so dangerous for law enforcement to respond to is because confronting a perpetrator when it's like pretty obvious that there's been some kind of physical violence can be really dangerous. Yeah. And it definitely was for Raven's dad in yeah. this who was literally shot, right? I'm glad he survived. Yes, yeah, he did. And I, I read it, I don't have it saved here, but I read in, in one of the articles that I pulled up that he did not report it to the police at that time mm-hmm. because he said something along the lines of he just didn't want to turn it into a whole big thing. And so I wonder how much... Uh, Raven had to play into that to kind of minimize and kind of maybe try and gain control back of the situation because it sounds like Raven was really in this and having to maintain her safety throughout this entire several year long relationship. Right. Yeah. And it's like one of those, you know, when you mentioned at the very beginning about how this is complicated and it's not just the violent relationship, there's other variables and stuff like now her family mm-hmm. is a part of this as well. So now it basically she's not the only one that's been abused. Right. And there, I think a lot of times there's a really large fear for survivors. There are so many threats that happen. Like if you tell anybody, I'm going to hurt your family. If you tell your mom, I'm going to come after her. You know, that happens pretty frequently with abusers. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times as advocates, we're like, yeah, that really could happen. But it also could be that they're just trying to manipulate you. Both are true. And this is so scary because everything that he could have possibly threatened 
came to fruition, right? He mm-hmm. actually did end up harming her family. And there was another time even where her mom, her name, her mom's name is Lakeisha. Lakeisha, Raven's mom, actually ended up did call, whoa, grammar, actually did call the police. Um, Raven came with a black eye and obviously pretty, pretty beat up. And Lakeisha called the police and filed a report Um and from what I could find, nothing ever came of it. And Ronald said that uh, Raven didn't want to cooperate with law enforcement. And so it seems like the case got dropped. And mm-hmm. so when I'm putting this whole puzzle together, what I am thinking of, what comes to mind, is how difficult Raven's situation must have been, how terrifying that would be. Mm-hmm. Because if it's gotten to the point where... Um, law enforcement has been involved. She has been extremely physically harmed and her father has been shot and she's still to the point where she knows it's not safe to go to court with this and to testify. How terrifying is her situation, right? Yeah. How, I can't even imagine what's going on. Well, and especially since they have a kid together, mm-hmm. there's a child in the home and if he already shot her dad I would be terrified for that child absolutely absolutely and unfortunately we can't understand what was going on in Raven's mind at this time but I can imagine that that would be a huge part of this just knowing what I know about domestic violence and how frequently children are used to manipulate Mm -hmm. victims and so I would not be surprised at all if JJ was a huge factor in all of this, right? And if we weren't positive that Watkins was a really, really scary guy, this is also just some background information for you. He has a prior murder conviction from 1995, where he, it says that there was a minor money dispute and he ended up shooting his friend in the back of the head and leg. So... Scary, scary guy, right? Jeez. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, the first thing that goes through somebody's mind, like, hearing that is, like, you know, and we have to, like, acknowledge that this is just a first reaction and it's not necessarily, like, what I genuinely believe. But it's like, oh, wow, she really chose a keeper. Right? right? But having been through something similar myself, like the guy that I was with for three years, that was very abusive. He had a prior history. He had seven felonies when I began dating him and he had like, they can just be so manipulative and either they don't tell you about the prior conviction and you end up falling in love. Maybe you have a kid and then you find out or they're honest to a certain extent because it's like hard to hide that you have a murder charge maybe, or that you've been convicted of murder and, but they have some kind of elaborate tale as to how either they're innocent or it was justified. Or a complete misunderstanding Mm -hmm. that got blown out of proportion. Right. Yep. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So I, no shade on Raven because she sounds like, She was in a really, really difficult situation. Mm -hmm. But she was in a situation 
that she was trying desperately to get out of. Desperately to get out of. She tried so hard. In fact, <clears throat> Lakeisha, her mom, is quoted saying, my daughter knew that she was being abused and she tried to get out of it. But by the time she tried to get out of it, it was a little bit too late. So what happened on that fateful night of Thanksgiving is at this point, from my understanding, Raven and Watkins are broken up. She has put the kibosh on the whole thing and she has moved out, okay? So what Watkins does is breaks into her house and steals all of hers and JJ's clothing, takes it all and brings it back to his house. And calls Raven up and says, like, hey, it's November, it's cold, you know JJ's cold. If you want this clo- if you want the clothes back, you gotta come and get them. And so she does, right? She does what she feels like she needs to to take care of JJ. All of JJ's clothes are at Watkins' house. So she This is after he tried standing outside her window with a boom box, right? <laughs> Well, you know, you never know how those true love stories go, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I assume we're many love letters in. You're probably right. Um, So Thanksgiving, um, and she met him, what reports say, is about 9.30 p.m. So she met him at his house at around 9.30 to go pick up the clothes, and things got really ugly from there. We don't have a lot of details as to what happened during that night, but we do know that she called her dad at around 10 right after, it says 10.08, saying that he would not let her leave, that Watkins would not let her leave the house and that she was really scared and that she had been trying to leave for a really, really long time. And at this point, her dad is obviously freaked out, right? Um, because Mm -hmm. he knows that Watkins has been really abusive and he knows that Watkins has literally shot him. So I think he's probably taking his daughter really seriously when she says this. And it's probably a good thing that he was taking her seriously because that's when she was murdered. Um, so what happened is that that night she was shot And what the autopsy report says is that she was shot in the back. So she didn't even really see it coming. And the saddest part about this is that JJ witnessed the whole thing. The whole thing. Mm, I was just thinking, where was the kid? (sighs) Yeah. JJ was there. And I don't know if JJ saw Raven get shot or if she heard it, or if she was in another room, I'm not quite sure. All I know is that she played a huge role in helping the police find Raven. So when the police showed up, and I don't, again, I don't know who called the police. It could have been JJ. It could have been, it, it makes sense that it would be J, uh, Raven's dad. That kind of makes sense with the timeline, but it doesn't say anywhere who actually called the police. But what we do know is that JJ was the first people, first person to meet the police and the EMTs. And she, what she said is, my mom is laying on the floor and she's crying. And then she says, look at this pink on my hands. And of course, she's... Oh, gosh. Her mom's blood. Yeah. 
heartbreaking. This right? is a horrible Thanksgiving story. I know. I know. It's terrible. It is terrible. Poor JJ, right? That was the part that really, really got me. Was that quote, which is why I put it in here directly. Look at the, this pink on my hands. Like, she didn't even know how to communicate. Like, this is my mom's blood. That is terrible. Yeah. That how is- old was JJ at the time? Two. 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 And this happened Thanksgiving of 2019. So this is a pretty fresh story. Mm. And that means JJ is now three. Right? Gosh. And, like, people think that, like, oh, thank God, she won't, like, remember remember it when she's older. But no, no. Yep. This stuff has an impact. Absolutely. (laughs) Infant and toddler psychology is a real thing. It is. It absolutely does. And it will impact her and the way that she processes trauma and stress. And it still is impacting her, right? Like, in my head as I read this, Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, I hope that she, I know that she's going to have to deal with this eventually, but I hope that she blocks it out right now and can just have a moment of peace and just blocks all of this out. But that's not the case at all. She's currently living with Lakeisha, Raven's mom. And Mm -hmm. she says that every time she hears ambulances, she freaks Mm -hmm. out. There's a direct quote that I just found. So this is about JJ, and this is what Lakeisha says. She says, she can't stand to see a police car. She can't stand to see an ambulance. She sees an ambulance. She says, Grandma, Grandma, we have to drive faster. We have to get closer. My mom's back there. We got to go get her out of there. Oh... Oh my gosh. She like doesn't even understand at this age the concept of like death. Right. Right. Oh. Yeah. So let's just breathe through that for a second. <laughs> because that is horrific. Right? Yeah. It is horrific. Um, I don't know if this will be of any comfort to you, but on October 23rd, after a two-week trial, Watkins was charged with three charges, intentional second-degree murder, unintentional second-degree murder, and one count of of a prohibited person in possession of a firearm. Now, he was sentenced to 40 years which is the maximum amount of prison time that he could have received. What? But he murdered somebody intentionally. (laughs) That is a really good point. See, you and I were looking at this from much different lenses. I was like, oh, perfect. They gave him the most time that legally he would be allowed to serve. And I was like, this is such a win. But you're also right. He murdered somebody in front of his child and the most time he could get in prison was uh, 40 years. So take that for what you will. Um, it's, how old is he? He's 41. So, I mean, he could live, he could still have like 10, 20 years after he gets out. And also, he probably can get out on good behavior and have that time. 
That's my biggest pet peeve with the criminal system is that you get a 40-year sentence, which in my mind was like, oh, this is good. And in Britney's was like, whoa, not enough. But the reality is that if he plays all of his cards right in prison, then he can definitely get that sentence minimized and get out early on parole. I mean, like, how many people do you have to be convicted of murdering before somebody just decides that maybe you shouldn't be, like, in society? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I, I Looking at Watkins' life that we know of, and I'm sure that there is more going on based on what I know about Watkins, but he murdered his friend over the money, right? He shot Raven's dad, and then he murdered Raven. That's a lot of murder. Yeah. That is a lot of killing. And he could be out when he's 60. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. So this... So that's great. Yeah. This story, reasonably so, happened in Minneapolis and sent shockwaves through the Twin Cities, which was kind of the area in which it was happening. Um, and the whole community was just astounded. And it raised so many questions. And reasonably so, kind of on every level. It raised a lot of questions for people that knew her directly. It raised a lot of questions for the community as what as to what went wrong in this situation. And then our society of a lot of different things were playing a role in this. Um, so after this murder happened, horrible, there was a lot of buzz in the community that actually created some positive change. And so how horrific this murder was, terrible, Raven's story has created change within the, the Twin Cities community. And in the lives of a lot of people that knew her, she had one friend that was a man that came out and saying that he had previously been an abuser himself and that he was devastated now that he had seen how this story could play out, that he was so sorry for what he had done. And in a, it was some sort of public setting, public forum of some sort, he encouraged all the men to stand up and he charged them to, in his words, do the right thing, be patient with their significant others, and walk away when things get tense, rather than engage in violence. So this story created change for the people who knew Raven that might be abusers as well, or were even self-identified abusers, which is kind of shocking to me. When I read that, I was very surprised. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I just wish it didn't take somebody having to be murdered because, I mean, this is kind of a typical thing. Like somebody, the victim is murdered after she has left the relationship. And people in these abusive relationships know, like, that's when they're most afraid of being murdered. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, because they know like something really bad is going to happen if they leave. And so I feel like it should just be enough that there's people stuck in these emotionally, physically, sexually violent relationships. But no, it has to take somebody being murdered. 
that's absolutely right. That there's no way that it should have to escalate to the point of murder before people get freedom and safety. But I also think you bring up a really good point. And it's something that we talk about a lot. And we've mentioned it quite a few times on the podcast in the past, but also in our work, how scary it is to leave an abusive relationship. The concept of the, why doesn't she just leave? (laughs) You know that we have harped on that quite a bit, but this is why, right? She did leave. She did leave. And we have to take it so seriously when people say, if I leave, I could die. Because that's what happened with Raven. She knew how dangerous the situation was and she did everything quote unquote right. She left, just like everyone was saying, why don't you just leave? And she ended up being murdered. Yeah. And I wonder like, if she even knew that there were non-law enforcement resources out there, you know, because I think a lot of people might be thinking, well, why didn't she just call law enforcement? Like, why didn't she call for a civil standby to get her clothing? But like, honestly, people don't know about civil Mm -hmm. standbys or safety planning a lot of the time. Unless they talk with an advocate. Right. And there were no advocates in this story. None whatsoever. And I noticed that too. And I think it's interesting that you bring up law enforcement because that's what I want to talk about next. Um, That Raven was a beautiful, proud African-American woman. And she had a lot of barriers because of her race in this situation. When we talk, when I, when we started this podcast, I talked about how, you know, you, you wish that you could just pause all of the other elements of your life. And so you could just focus on the victimization. However, Raven had so many other things going on. And in this case, a lot of barriers that came from being a woman of color that made her experience a lot more difficult. And that's when I said that there was a community change or a community energy around this, I was serious. One person that spoke out out a lot about Raven's story, um, her name was, is, her name is Nakima. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but Levy Armstrong. And she, at the time, worked with the NAACP chapter in Minnesota, and she was a lawyer and a human rights activist. And she spoke up a lot about how Raven being a woman of color, and particularly a Black woman, very much influenced how this story ended. She Mm -hmm. said, the Black community must speak more openly about this issue and ensure that we have adequate resources available to protect and support victims, as well as teach men and boys to unlearn patterns of verbal, physical, and emotional abuse. We have to hold ourselves and our systems accountable. As we witnessed with Raven, this is a matter of life and death. Um, She goes on to say that mainstream media media failed to humanize Raven because of her identity, because she was a black woman. And she says, the erasure compelled me to write a post on Facebook to draw attention to what happened to her and the fact that her life mattered. This leads to a lack of empathy, this erasure that she's talking about Mm -hmm. um, from the general public when it comes to black victims. And I think, yeah, 
that she's totally right. We definitely see a difference in how the media covers domestic violence by race and and many things by race. And I think that mm-hmm. Levy Armstrong definitely had a point here. Yeah, and I think that it's something that's been brought up with, you know, Breonna Taylor. They've, I think they've worked really hard with this movement to humanize her. Yeah. Whereas that wasn't happening at first. Right. And then also, like, just remembering, like, all the barriers to people of color seeking services is like the back, you know, it's risky to go to law enforcement when you're in an abusive relationship because if they believe you and they do something about it and they actually protect you, that's great. But if they don't and your abusive, you know, the perpetrator finds out, then that could be very, very bad for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there's also just like the feeling of like not being protected. And remember that story we, uh, that other murdered woman uh, of color who had gone to the police. Mm -hmm. What, like she, she did like 50 police reports or something Mm -hmm. about that guy stalking her and they did nothing. They did absolutely nothing. And then he murdered her. So, you know, on the one hand, it's like, I want, people to utilize law enforcement more. But on the other hand, law enforcement has to be better for them, for me to like also be able to like fully recommend that people go to law enforcement. Yeah. So, so, so many barriers here for Raven and women of color like Raven. And I spent a lot of time researching this because Brittany and I are both white women right? And we are domestic violence Mm -hmm. advocates, but we come from a lens of our whiteness. And so there's a lot that we don't understand. And so I did some digging into this and there, there is some research that I found. So first off, um, an organization, which I think from my reading is a domestic violence organization called Blackburn Center. Um, They drew attention to the fact that more than 40% of black women experience domestic violence, which is a high number And that, when you compare it with all women of all colors, it's 31.5%. So there's almost a 10% increase um, from women in general to Black women of experiencing domestic violence. And that is high. And it also goes as far as to say that domestic violence is the number one health risk for Black women. The number one health risk. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's just, and like, you know, that it's not because like, I think people are targeted Mm -hmm. because they are more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And we see this with, um, with native American women as well. Um, and you know, individuals who are transgender and, Mm -hmm. you know, like people that, you know, they know that like nobody is going to listen to them. Yep. You know? especially not officials. Yeah. And so they choose them because they, because of that. You are so right in the fact that the, a woman's blackness does not inherently make her more vulnerable for domestic violence. However, the barriers that go along with that make 
finding safety extremely, extremely difficult. And so in researching from this Blackburn Center, they go as far as to say that the the root cause of domestic violence for Black women is the same root cause for domestic violence, period, which is you know, the things that we talk about on this podcast, the systemic issues of rape culture and gender norms and and how we see this play out in our society, right? It's the same for everyone, but it's just more pronounced for Black women because of all of the additional barriers. And here mm-hmm. are some additional barriers, right? Brett, you mentioned a few of them. And one of them, a loud one, is the issue with trusting law enforcement. There is a real serious issue with the trust of law enforcement for people of color and pervasively, but this becomes a huge problem in cases of domestic violence because there's times where perpetrators of domestic violence should have law enforcement intervene and there should be arrests happening But those don't happen because of the distrust. Because for some of us, it's a pretty easy step to be, I'm in danger, I'm going to call 911. But that is not a common rule for everyone because sometimes police are just as dangerous as what we're running from, Mm -hmm. right? So that's a huge thing. And that's something that Brittany talked about. Another thing is this myth that African-American women are, quote, domineering figures that require control. And as I read this, I was like, hmm, because, again, I am a white woman, (laughs) and I didn't recognize this. But as I thought more about this, I thought about the perception in media, and I thought about the way that different things are marketed, and I kind of do see that. I do see the general perception that Black women are, quote, unquote, domineering and that they do, I can see that perception. Now, again, I don't or, think that, that is accurate, but I think that yeah. there is that misconception of that. Well, and I think also there's also this view of Black women as just being really strong. Mm-hmm. Like emotionally, like that they're gritty and um, and that they can defend themselves. You are 100% right. And so in tune with this, because that's another bullet point that the Women of Color Network uh, focused on, is that Black women are known for being exceptionally strong under stress and super resilient. And so there's that view from the outside, right? But then there's this push from this internal identity piece of like, I am really strong and I need to be able to deal with this. And so because of that, that's an additional barrier for speaking out and getting support, right? Mm-hmm. And then another interesting one that I thought was so true from the Women of Color Network is, and this is a quote, culturally and historically, African-American women have been looked to as the protectives, protectors of their family and community. Some women may feel because of their religious beliefs that they must impart forgiveness for their abuser's behavior and endure the abuse due to religious obligations under Christian doctrine. The form of religious maternalism or caretaking towards their spouse casts them as their husband's protectors and makes it more difficult for women to report their abuse or leave their abuser. Which I thought was 
And that kind of reminds me of something that I've heard before that like matri- matrilineal or um, like cultures or families that like revere women, that those, they can't have abuse of women. You know, like if the head of the family is a woman, she can't possibly be a victim of abuse and they can't possibly raise a man to be abusive towards a woman. But that's just wrong. That can totally happen. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason why I wanted to talk about this story is first off because Thanksgiving and we love a themed podcast. We always do, right? But I think this does a really good job of illustrating how complex domestic violence is, right? Mm -hmm. We've touched upon this through this whole podcast of having domestic violence just be one part of what you're experiencing as a person. But this does such a good job at covering that because while Raven was experiencing domestic violence, Raven was experiencing motherhood and she was experiencing being a daughter and she was experiencing being a professional and she was experiencing being a black woman. And all of these different parts of her identity coexisted and created a mess for Mm -hmm. her to try and navigate the situation. And unfortunately her story ended in murder. Right. But when we look at domestic violence stories, I think too frequently we see a single story, we see bullet points and we see like, this is the, this is what happened. This is the timeline of events but we don't really dive into the other aspects of identities that make things more challenging and more complicated. And I think that is to our error. And so in our push forward to a new podcast in our new newborn baby podcast, um, that's something we're going to really try and focus on in these case reviews is pulling in all of the pieces all of the pieces, not just a timeline of events of what happened, but digging into all the different parts of a person's life that interact with their Mm -hmm. victimization and how they work together. And I think it's really important and I'm very excited about it. I'm excited about that too. I mean, I've literally, I've literally had people ask me why do different people respond to the same trauma in different ways. Mm-hmm. Like why do some people come out of it better than others? Or why did, you know, one victim or survivor make this decision while the other person made this other decision to the same situation. And it's because everybody has different identities and different pieces of identities. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, just because you've been through the same thing as somebody else doesn't mean you know, that you're going to have the same outcome or that you're going to make the same decisions as that person. And so as an advocate and as a survivor myself, you know, like, I think it's easy for a lot of survivors to say, well, I've been through that. I know what they've gone through, you know? Um, And so I have to be very careful to make sure that they know that their reaction to things and all of that, like that's, that's their own situation. And so even though we may have experienced similar things, like 
their situation is still kind of totally different from mine. It's not a one size fits all. Like advocacy is not one size fits all. Right. Thank you so much for sharing that, Brittany, because that's, you put it so perfectly in that just as how every single person is unique and has different experiences and different personalities and identities, that translates to what they experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we're going to really focus on in these case reviews. So I hope that you enjoyed (laughs) this deep dive into uh, what we could find about Raven's life and, and looking really deeply and critically into her story. And if you did, stay tuned because we will be adding these to the rotation and doing a case review um, pretty frequently. I want to end this podcast with one more quote from Lakeisha, which is Raven's mom. And she's talking about Thanksgiving and um, how that's changed. And she says, I don't ever think I'll be able to get through that day like I would have thanking God for blessing us, all the things he's done for us, for all, for, for us throughout the whole year. Now I'll be spending that day grieving my daughter and at mm-hmm. her gravesite, wishing that she was here with us. Oh, it's just another layer yeah. <laughs> on this whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. If you want to find more about Raven Gant's murder and about her experience with domestic violence, I pulled most of the research from this podcast from local journalists in Minnesota that covered the murder at the time last year when it happens. Um, So feel free to reach out to me to get my sources, but also do some of your own research and find Raven Gant's journalism. There's quite a bit that covered it and there's, there's some really good information about out there. If you are a person that is experiencing domestic violence or have a loved one who's experiencing domestic violence and you're worried or you want to talk to somebody about it, please, please, please feel free to reach out and talk with an advocate. Even if you are not local to Wyoming and you, we are not your closest program, we can help you find somebody close that can help you figure out what your next steps might be and how to find safety. Um, feel free to call our hotline number, which is 307-745-3556. And we can get you connected with an advocate, whether that be us or a program that's closer to you. And uh, happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> Belated. Belated Thanksgiving. And I, I I, don't know if I could say happy Thanksgiving after this story. but I know, I was just going to say, I think it's actually good that we didn't release this before Thanksgiving. So that people aren't like thinking about it that is at true. Thanksgiving. That is true. I'm glad that we didn't ruin your Thanksgiving. Um, <laughs> that would be, I would feel pretty bad about that. Yeah, we already have COVID. We don't need yeah. like murder. Yeah. Let COVID be the thing that ruined your Thanksgiving, not Livy and Brittany. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, thank you for listening today and tune in for a podcast coming up pretty soon. We've got some good stuff planned and we are excited to be back on the air. So excited. Woo!